0: Acceptable! Look! G.I. Joe is beating us in the snow! G.I. Joe is fighting Cobra the enemy on land, the sea, and air. G.I. Joe! And he's beating us in the air! Joe's chasing Cobra in a desperate race. Soaring and diving in a great sky chase. Joe. A real American hero. There's only one man who can help us. It's him. What's in store for G.I. Joe? Find out in Marvel Comics. things that i is it my life or just something i dreamed resume noun 1 a summing up summary 2 a brief written account of personal educational and professional qualifications and experience The previous issue may have been my first in a series, but it was Captain America number 281 that made the greater impression. I don't think I'd picked up the Fireside Edition yet, so I'm not entirely certain I knew who Bucky was and how much he meant to the legend of the Sentinel of Liberty. Regardless, the patriotic pair were poised in a fashion most heroic. I love the black and white newsreel celluloid running in the background, and I approached this issue with an excitement that I imagine kids felt seeing Showcase number 4 on the stands a generation earlier. I dug the dual corner box figures, though Spider-Woman was an unexpected addition here. Even the little green army man with a misappropriated Defenders logo piqued my interest. The first page of Before the Fall depicted Cap and Bucky leaping into battle at the Capitol as bullets zing past them so dynamically rendered by Mike Zeck and John Beatty that it would have rivaled Kirby if it had been in color. It turned out to be Steve Rogers and his girlfriend Bernie Rosenthal watching archival footage at a local New York City cinema. But they weren't alone and a mysterious third party followed them home from the theater. Cut to television cartoon star Spider-Woman battling giant snakes commanded by the well-designed, sleeky super-spy, fascist villainous Viper, an early and ongoing favorite of mine. Back to Bernie making time with Steve in their apartment and nursing a burgeoning interest in brown haired Jewish girls started by Kitty Pride. That dark haired greaser dude from the movies came knocking and Steve started wailing on him. Turns out in an extended flashback this is Jack Monroe, the mentally unbalanced commie bashing second Bucky that served with a racist nutcase ersatz cap back in the 1950s. Jack got treatment for his issues and though he came along a decade later was as much a man out of his own time as Steve. Steve recognized their similar straits and welcomed him as a friend in need. Before long, Cap and Bucky were together again for the first time looking for while patrolling rooftops. They were soon confronted by the underrated, and for my money, cool looking, also ran Batty the Constrictor. He's another guy like the shocker who gets no respect because of a funky color scheme and padded costume, but I thought he looked boss, and I've always had a soft spot for him. Constrictor also kept up the snake theme as Viper's not quite hydra minions kidnapped Cap in the cliffhanger ending. Viper even got a Doctor Evil moment of dispatching a henchman that displeased her in a brutally impractical fashion. I enjoyed this James Mateus script, especially all that deliriously overwrought continuity that made me a Marvel zombie. And yet yet, for some reason, I never quite got around to buying the next issue. I wanted to, and considered it for a week or two after its release, then mourned when the last copy disappeared. Why, you may ask? Because it featured Jack Monroe in Steve's old nomad costume, that's why. I missed out on Monroe's debut in the moniker he would own for longer than anyone else, because I couldn't get past his gaudy yellow and blue tights with the plunging cleavage and the limp cape. As impressed as I was with the Constrictor choking cap out on the cover, I couldn't stand for the ignominity of his being saved by a guy who made the Protector look like Moon Knight by comparison. I'd pick it up the next month though. I read a copy of Avengers number 231 at the old school beauty salon where my grandmother liked to get her beehive tended. This was the same joint where I played with an Indiana Jones action figure choreographed to Survivor's Eye of the Tiger coming out of the overhead speakers. Anyway this comic put me off the team. The Al Milgram art and some of the character selections didn't help but my main problem was they're fighting a tree. I never warmed to heroes versus nature or animated inanimate objects. Now for some shout outs. A buddy of mine picked up a few issues of US 1 during the short-lived trucking fab. I like BJ and the Bears much as the next guy, but I could barely muster enough enthusiasm for this ugly, boring book to even toss through it, much less read the thing. I must stress that I even prefer the TSR-80 WizKids comics over the likes of US 1, but I'd have lit both on fire for a copy of G.I. Joe, a real American hero number 11. In retrospect, the issue doesn't look all that much better, but it didn't matter because this was the issue that was advertised with an animated commercial on actual for real television. My understanding is it was some sort of legal workaround to have... Marvel animation create a spot for the comic instead of the action figures, and if I recall correctly, it predated the actual G.I. Joe show. So that spot was more exciting to kids my age than pretty much any of the cartoons the commercial played during. I swiped a copy of Batman number 359 from the big brown grocery sack of comics my best friend got in the summer of 88. It was especially egregious because it was the origin of Killer Croc, which helped seal the deal with my Croc fandom. But it was also a great black villain and my friend was himself African American. He probably couldn't care less, but I still have that issue. And it's something of a telltale heart beating in my short box. Hope he liked those Punisher comics or whatever he picked up when I finally tried to even up with him a year or two later. I think we had Spider-Woman number 50 in that bag. Which is a flippin' bizarro issue involving the oddly macabre sporting character jessica drew had picked up and ended with her retroactively wiping herself from existence i hate a lot of brian michael bendis's contributions to comics but as a fellow gent Xer who watched her show i appreciated his attempts to restore her to some kind of stature in the 21st century despite one of the keenest photo covers ever i didn't steal this one by the way it may seem like i had sticky fingers because i keep referencing these books from the grocery sack but this is one of the only episodes of my ever thieving which is why it's so regrettable to me i was constantly stolen from growing up so I'm comically still well in the black, but this rare slip still weighs on me 30 years later. Oh, and he had Kesar the Savage number 26, along with many others, but at least those were safe around me. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this was also the month the new Teen Titans drug awareness giveaway with the orange cover came out. As with the other two, I had to pay for mine, but I got this one years later out of a quarter bin at a comic shop. I'd read a lot of comics between the other two and this one, which colored my perception, but I always think this one is the least of the three. It's the only one without a Perez cover, Joey Cavalieri scripted over a Wolfman plot, and adrian gonzalez was never particularly a favorite of mine however when you pick the thing up and flip through it you can plainly see that it's the most interesting of a lot yeah we spend too much time with the one whiny brat junkie but the time's idea of scaring him straight was essentially to beat and threaten the kid like he was a mobster in gotham which is entertainingly wrong-headed more importantly though this is the one with the morbid acid trip that reads like a fleischer specter story where a zombie junkie snorts so hard through a full-length drinking straw that he turns into a pillar of cocaine that blows away in the wind. Then Raven gets an empathetic LSD contact high from the kid and fights the entire team after becoming an actual giant blackbird. Also, the protector's mask is drawn extra gimpy. And there's that one panel where Cyborg inspects a junkie's track marks. This one was way more violent and transgressive than the other two. And it even ends on Lois Lane, which he had that awful Connie Chung hair. If this issue had gotten to me with the other ones, I'm pretty sure it would have been dramatic. Finally, there was Power Man and Iron Fist number 93, which wasn't my first time reading the duo but it was my first time buying them i lived in a mixed race neighborhood majority latino so everyone who wasn't tended to stick together my black friends got their own copies which were available for loan thanks to luke cage i was all right with the mainstream period dennis cowan art but it wasn't yet anywhere near what he would become also no one has ever looked more disgusting noshing on a slice of pizza than luke does here like conan gorging on a dripping purple octopus tentacle as an aside, I'm not sure if I'd had pizza yet by this point. I'm not going to say pizza was exactly exotic in the early 80s, but it still wasn't common enough that I could guarantee I'd encountered it yet. I don't remember eating pizza until like, I don't know, 84? Anyway, in those days, Kurt Music scripts typically missed the mark with me and usually didn't make it home. You'll note by the absence of many DC purchases this month that I was already over their dated shenanigans. So the last thing I wanted was a flash rogue like Camistro. Another downside was that like the Captain America, this was another cliffhanger, this time involved. While they can cast members getting stuck turned into glass. Marvel was as bad about multi-parters as I was about not buying all the chapters, so I never finished this dumb story. I subtitled the previous episode of Comic Reader Resume full-time. And that was definitely jumping the gun because I was at best the probationary hire in early 1983. Starting in 1989, I picked up a fair few titles from March and April of 1983 as back issues and quarterbin fodder. But I think it stretches the premise of the show too much to acknowledge, say, liking gray moral art on the first issue of Black Hood or an ambush bug appearance from before I'd actually been introduced to the character. I'm also bummed out because the 20 minutes of raw material I thought was going to be a total episode when I recorded it early Monday morning truncated to under 10 minutes on Tuesday night ahead of my posting deadline. I can't justify an episode that slight, even with the excuse of not following up on a single one of February's cliffhanger issues, and even skipping on the grand finale of The Brave and the Bold at a mall bookstore because I thought the Golden Age Batman looked dumb. Plus, the fifty cover price was too steep. Maybe this was when I got the Captain America Fireside Edition and it wiped out my comics budget for a couple of months? I guess if I was only going to purchase one comic book in March, it should have been the grand finale of the Viper arc in Captain America number 283, right? I'm asking here. It was cool to get a flashback to Steve's childhood in the resolution to the lame cliffhangers from the issue I didn't read I Guess Dum-Dub Dugan maybe gets his name from not knowing how to take nitroglycerin properly in the event of a heart attack. I know this kid was hyped for minor medication crises in my funny books. Then there's like a small town parade and some brainwashing and Dum-Dum dressed as a carny and a hot air balloon chase. Where's Chuck Barris? Because this issue even ends with a bong sound effect. The Mike Zed cover was swell, and there's nothing wrong with his interiors except what he was asked to depict. No wonder I quit comics for the entire month of April. I strongly recall one of my friends having Justice League of America number 217 or at least the cover one of the greatest team shots of all time by George Perez despite this I recall nothing of the interiors even though they had some pretty nice looking Chuck Patton art I do associate that cover with a move to a studio apartment that we were in for less than a year though so maybe that contributed to my buying slump there was another G.I. Joe comic book commercial on TV this one devoted to Destro at number 14 that must have been a temptation odd then that my actual comeback comic was of all things May 1983 alpha flight number one at the 7-eleven at a dollar it was a big ticket purchase although a bargain at its double length page count like most of the comics world i was smitten with john byrne in his prime and all those great looking marvel heroes on the cover made it an easy sell however i soon realized that of all those heroes alpha flight was certainly the least for instance grouping snowbird Northstar and aurora together made it apparent that they barely had one costume color between them puck's defining character color is his own hairy flesh the same was true of marina's jaundiced skin her suit coming out of namorita's don't Ben. Sasquatch was a poor man's beast, and Shaman seemed rejected by the global guardians. Talking of, Guardian was the only well designed character in costume, but that costume was a sum total of his personality. Saying that James McDonald Hudson was no Captain canna seems like an especially harsh put down, but he did stay dead in an X Men spin off comic for nearly a hundred issues. Regardless of Claremont's sketch phrase, He never really got better. The Alphans fought a bunch of giant muck monsters from Canadian native folklore, which today I would find neat, but as a kid bored me. They reminded me of a movie I saw called Shadow of the Hawk that tripped me out but that was spooky because it was normal humans against a foreign form of the supernatural. Brightly colored superheroes following in the footsteps of the late Jan Michael Vincent was considerably less impressive. For years, that issue was one I would toss through to look at the burn art, but not actually read. I next bought All-Star Squadron number 24, lured in by what amounted to Spider-Man versus the Justice Society. Not that I knew what a Justice Society of America was back then. I had trouble wrapping my brain around heroes still fighting World War II in 1983, so put me down as one of the kids who did not get the whole multiverse thing. Yet to this day, I think the redesigned tarantula looks fantastic. I'm sure Ditko's version of Blue Beetle was a big influence, but the uncommon use of Brown classed the tarantula up. Chuck Nixon teased the character's return throughout his Nightwing run, only for Devin Grayson to pull a gender swap that necessitated adjustments to the costume that ruined its flow. The art here by Jerry Ordway and Mike Macklin was lovely. For Rory Thomas has never really been a favorite of mine, and the story's the thing. I might have given the book another try, but I specifically recall buying this off the spinner rack at Jimco, the only place I ever saw the title in my pre-comic show days shopping trips there were momentous but irregular finally there's the saga of Crystar, crystal warrior number three but it was stupidly prohibitively expensive as a two dollar baxter format edition i liked the Crystal toys and it inherited an interest in dr strange from my uncle so this standard issue got the nod instead nice michael golden cover decent joe duffy story appealing ron friends danny Bolandi interior art but nothing to inspire further reading what makes my memory of the book fond was that for some reason my grandmother decided that this was the one issue she was going to write my name under the indicia as a theft prevention device it was the only time she ever did that and while i've mostly lost and occasionally gained comics through griff i still have this particular issue So, who wanted to see our resume this month? Adriano, Doctor Ange, Between the Pages, Chris of Bad Books for Beginners, Coffee and Comics, Collected Edition, Comics in the Golden Age, DeBache, Doc Strange, Ed Moore, Firestorm Fan, Paul Hicks, History of Comics on Film, Into the Weird, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Jeffrey Brown, Justice First On. Kichi Baker, King Dinosaur, Kirk Spencer is Crazy from the Heat, Christados, Lee Welsh, The Liquid Awesome, Lawrence King Kissart, Odell Abner Dracula, Old Desert Hymnal, Rad Adventures Podcasting Network, Reggie Reggie, Ryan Daly, Scott, Scott Rowland, Seer Wars of Beyond Podcast, Slangword Scott, Superbound, Tom Beach, and Doug Zwisha. Superbound wrote, I can only put two of these on my comic reader resume. The Omega Men and X-Men. Odell Edward Dracula wrote, Hit me up if you lose all decision-making faculties and do commit to a Neil Diamond one song each. Sorry, Odell. For now, that's just what you yam a solitary fan. We got tonight Who needs to Let's make it last.